chapter 9. As we begin to turn there, I, I just want to uh, acknowledge, in fact, that we were in our, getting ready to pray for the service, and uh, Dan was teasing me about being in Hawaii while I was off. I wasn't, but I reminded him, well, a year ago I was in Hawaii, remember? I go, yeah, that's right, that's right. Uh, if you guys will remember, uh, a year ago, our family, we had 19 of us in our family in, 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 on Maui uh, celebrating uh, our, Jeanette and mine, 50th anniversary. You know, and we, it was um, a year ago today, it was a Saturday last year, we were on that beach, and we did a renewal of vows and all. It was a wonderful, wonderful day celebrating our 50th anniversary. And uh, today is our 51st anniversary. I just want to share that with you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, this year has seen a lot, a lot of changes. And um, I'm just not able to celebrate with my wife like I did a year ago. And uh, it's a, uh, you know, Jamie uh, greeted me this morning with happy anniversary. He said, it, it's sad, huh? It is. It, it, it is sad. It is sad. It's hard. It's hard. You know, it, it's like anyone else who has lost a loved one, perhaps in, in you know, a, a passing to go home to be with the Lord, you know, just not there to celebrate with. But my honey is there, but can't celebrate with her. So just keep us in your prayers. Uh, my, my kids are going to be with, with us today. I've got Tracy and, and Ian are, are, are in town with us, and uh, Mark and OG and the kids are going to come over. We're going to be all together today for anniversary. It's going to be a sweet time. But it is a bitter, sweet day today. So appreciate your prayers for us. Appreciate your prayers for us. But you know... Um, The worship this morning has touched my heart. Yeah, I mean, God remains faithful. He does remain faithful. And I am so, so grateful for the many, 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 many wonderful anniversary celebrations I was able to have with my wife. You know, and those of you who've lost a spouse understand exactly what I'm talking about. And as we... Uh, mourn the loss you know, we understand and I think I've shared this with you guys recently I'm pretty sure I have if I have forgive me but I'm going to say it again you know whenever we have a loss you know it, it just reminds me of what uh, what Job said you know he said the Lord gives the Lord takes away blessed be the name of the Lord you know and with the loss, we can hurt. But you know, the, the measure of the pain is directly proportional to the blessing of the gift that that person was to us. You know, we've got to remember that, yeah, there's loss now, but first there was a gift. First God gave this person to me. You know, and so I mean, just such, such a such a powerful, powerful truth, and I want to rem remind each one of you to to, to always remember that. And um, God remains faithful. God remains faithful. I'm looking forward to um, our days ahead 
when we are with the Lord in his very presence, worshiping him together. Things will be a bit different. We won't be married then. I'm convinced we will remember that we were, but understand why we're not then. We'll know that. But, uh, yeah, good things ahead of us, good things ahead of us. And right now, presently ahead of us, is Acts chapter 9. So let, let's open to there. I asked you to open up to Acts 9. Would you stand with me? Now, because of the amount of time that I just shared, I've cut into my time in the Word here, and we have a lot to cover, because this is an incredible passage. We're going to be looking at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, one of the more, gosh, it's just exciting passages in the New Testament. But I'm going to be reading out of the New King James Version as we stand in honor of God's Word. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And Father, we pray that you'd pour your Spirit upon this place, upon each of our hearts, Lord, that he will do his work in giving us understanding of this passage, that we might comprehend the incredible truths that you speak to us through this passage, that he would, that your spirit would cause us to see Jesus more and more clearly, and in the same way, Lord, cause us to see our own need for him more and more clearly. Thank you, Lord, for him. Thank you for the gift that he is to us. And so, Lord, have your way with our hearts now. And be glorified, Lord Jesus, we pray in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. At a young age, John Newton went to sea. Like most sailors of his day, he lived a life of rebellion and debauchery. For several years, he worked on slave ships capturing slaves for sale to the plantations of the New World. So low did he sink that at one point he became a slave himself, captive of, of another slave trader. Eventually he became the captain of his own slave ship. The combination of a frightening storm at sea and his own reading of Thomas A. Kempis' classic book, Imitation of Christ, planted the seeds 
that resulted in his conversion. He went on to become a leader in the evangelical movement in the 18th century England, along with men like John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and William Wilberforce. On his tombstone is inscribed the following epitaph, written by Newton himself. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. When he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, he was writing from his own heart his thankfulness to God. Church history is filled with accounts of people like him highlighting the marvelous power of the gospel to save and transform sinners. But what we have before us today in looking at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is perhaps the most remarkable conversion story of them all. So significant is it that Luke, who records it here in Acts 9, records it two more times later in the book of Acts as he quotes the Apostle Paul by name at that time as he gives his own testimony before a riotous mob in Jerusalem in chapter 22 and then in chapter 26 before King Agrippa. Three times this story is told. He was by birth a Jew, by citizenship a Roman, by education a Greek, and purely by the grace of God a Christian. We see that as he was changed so dramatically on this day, he became a missionary a theologian, an evangelist, a pastor, an organizer, a leader, a thinker, a fighter for truth, and a lover of souls. Never was a more godly man that lived on the face of this earth except for the Lord Jesus himself. There are many who would agree with that. He was born in Tarsus, in a very, a very important city in the Roman province of Cilicia. You might remember when we were in the sixth chapter uh, in, in verse 9 of chapter 6, it states that Stephen, who was martyred in the seventh chapter, we remember, uh, that he debated with men from Cilicia. That makes us wonder if Saul of Tarsus could have been one of those men. We don't know, but it's interesting to think about, isn't it? Uh, Tar uh, Tarsus was famous for its university, which ranked with those of Athens and Alexandria at that time, among the most honored universities in all of the Roman world. Um, his father had to be a Roman citizen because he himself, as he says in Acts 22, he, has, he was a Roman citizen from birth. So his father was a Roman citizen. His, his father also was a Pharisee, as he declares in Acts chapter 23. Paul uh, studied, well, I should say Saul of Tarsus at this point. He's still Saul of Tarsus. But, but he, st he studied as Saul of Tarsus under the, 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 the teaching of Gamaliel, who was the most respected rabbi uh, 
of his day. And of course, when Stephen was executed in chapter 7, Saul guarded the robes of those who executed Stephen by stoning. Uh, his position was so close to the action that it does suggest that he was deeply involved in the whole affair. And fascinatingly, is that a word, fascinatingly? Um, hearing most likely every word that Stephen spoke. I think that was something that, that God used tremendously in Saul of Tarsus in bringing him to faith. Here, as we approach chapter 9, having left chapter 8, earlier in chapter 8, the first three verses, we, we, we saw uh, uh, Luke writing about Saul persecuting the church of Jerusalem. And, and in that persecution, many people left Jerusalem to other areas. Many, of course, went to Damascus, which is in Syria. It's an, another nation, not a part of uh, Israel. Damascus, Syria, which exists to this day, of course. Now, I've been blessed, and a number of you have been blessed as well, to, to have been in Israel. And in the north of Israel, we, we, we go to a an encampment, a former encampment of, of, uh, uh, for the army, and we're able to, to view uh, Syria and Lebanon, and there's a road that's pointed out. This is the road that goes to Damascus, the very road that Paul the Apostle, well, Saul of Tarsus, took in his trip to Damascus for the purpose of bringing the Christians who had fled from Jerusalem to get them to bring them back to Jerusalem. Later, he would testify before King Agrippa in Acts 26, verses 9 to 11. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Thus, I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so he went to Damascus. As we look at these first two verses here in the book of Acts, ninth chapter, we see verse 1 says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, having been introduced already, chapter 8 being a chapter which speaks about Philip's ministry primarily. Now back to Paul, then, excuse me, back to Saul. Uh, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, remember the term to define Christianity at that time, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. All these things had happened aside, but Saul was still chasing after those who were following the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth and claiming that he is the Messiah, claiming that he had raised from the had been raised from the dead, claiming that he still was 
alive. He was still breathing fresh. The idea being that, that, that this consumed him. He, this gave him his breath. He, he was breathing threats, breathing murder against those who were following after Jesus Christ. That, that became his life, his purpose for living. But he went to the high priest and asked letters from him. The high priest was, of course, the, uh, um, the president of the council of the Sanhedrin. He led the council. And as such, he was viewed by the Romans as the head of the Jew Jewish state. So it was only he who could grant permission for someone to go into another country to take them back from that country who had fled from Jerusalem, from Israel, to bring them back. And, and uh, F.F. Bruce writes this. He wrote, in 47 B.C., Julius Caesar, so that, that's something like 80 years, 82 years before this. Julius Caesar confirmed the rights and privileges of extradition anew to the Jewish nation, although Judea was no longer a sovereign state, and more particularly to the high priesthood. Luke's narrative implies that the right of extradition continued to be enjoyed by the high priest under the provincial administration set up in 86. So these letters that Paul sought from the high priest were really papers of extradition, going into another nation saying, we have fugitives here we want to bring back into our country for trial. That's basically what that was all about. That's why he needed those papers. And so as there were many believers who had fled from uh, Jerusalem to Damascus, fleeing because of the persecution and the persecution being primarily led by Saul of Tarsus, we see these things taking place. He wanted to bring them back and punish them for their quote-unquote blasphemy, right? That's what he believed they were, they were doing. Here we see the term the way for the first time uh, in the Bible, in the New Testament. It is the early term, as I mentioned for the church, deriving its name from probably, most likely, Jesus' description of himself as the way, the way, the truth, and the life, as he stated in John 14, 6. Well, Paul, I keep saying Paul, Saul of Tarsus, headed toward Damascus, and, and he obviously had a group of people with him. Uh, Probably some, some, some soldiers, those who, who were armed with, with weapons probably, as well as having plenty of, 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 of chains and so forth to bring those back, chained, bound uh, to Jerusalem. A team of people went. They were on the road to Damascus. And we see something interesting and incredible beginning to take place here. And by the way, as, as I mentioned already, I, I referred to Acts 22 and Acts 26, other places we can pull from to fill in the gaps of what Luke writes right here. There, there are more things that describe exactly what happened as they went and as of this experience here that we see beginning in, in verse 3, which says... As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him 
from heaven. In Acts 22, 6, Paul at this time says, Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. So this happened right around noon. And it's interesting that it's that time because there's no doubt that the sun was shining very brightly on, on this Middle East uh, uh, area at that particular point in time. And he says, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And in Acts 26, when he spoke to King Agrippa, verse 13, we see Paul saying, at midday, O king, along the road, I, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. So this light not only was around Saul, it was around those men who were with him on this trip. And he says that this light was brighter than the sun. It's no wonder he was blinded. And yet the others were not. That's curious, isn't it? It's as if the Lord protected the other men from blindness, and yet it affected Saul of Tarsus a great deal. More uh, uh, brighter than the sun, we see him speaking, him, him saying. In Acts 9.27, we see this taking place later on in this chapter. Barnabas took him, Saul of Tarsus, and brought him to the apostles. As you guys know, the church would not accept Saul of Tarsus in the beginning. And he, he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he had seen him. And, and one of the things that, that we need to understand is that not only did, did Saul of Tarsus see this incredibly bright light, which basically was an emanation of the glory of Jesus that, sh that shone brighter than the sun. We know that in the book of Revelation that we, are, we, that we see that there's going to be no sun that is going to uh, brighten the day in the new Jerusalem because God himself is the light. He provides the light. Brighter than the sun. It, it's just an incredible, incredible event that takes place here. Um, but we see here that Luke declares that Barnabas declared that Paul had seen the Lord on the road. And we, we see also in, first, or in, in uh, Acts 26, 16, as Paul is speaking to King Agrippa, he's quoting Jesus and says, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. I have appeared to you, not just the, the brightness of my glory, but I myself have appeared to you. Saul saw Jesus, which, which of course is one of the requirements for an apostle to having been with Jesus, to having seen the risen Lord. That's one of the requirements for an apostle. That's why Paul could call himself an apostle to the Gentiles. But going on there in, in Acts 26, I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen 
and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. 1 Corinthians 9.1, the Apostle Paul wrote, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? 1 Corinthians 15.8, Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time, speaking of him seeing Jesus the Christ. And so all these verses speaking of, of the fact that, that Paul gave testimony that he saw Jesus Christ. So this bright light shines around them. He sees Jesus. The other men see the bright light. They are surrounded by the bright light, but they don't see anyone. Then verse 4. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, when we, we see this, that, that, that Saul fell to the ground, we can wonder, okay, and, and we don't know because it doesn't say, was he on a horse and fell to the ground? Was he just simply walking and fell to the ground? Was he on a donkey or a camel or, 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 or something? We, we, we don't know. All we know is that he fell to the ground. Later do we do see that as he rises up, he had to be led by hand into Damascus. That would seem to favor the idea that they were walking. Uh, or else they, they, they may have put him on the horse if he had been riding a horse or, or a donkey or whatever. We don't know for certain. But he fell to the ground as this light shone around him. And then he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Um, Saul's response to this is, well, who are you, Lord? Now, imagine, imagine Saul. Now, Saul had been trained in the scriptures. He understood what the Old Testament had to say about God and his glory, the brightness of his glory and so forth. He understood everything about the Lord. He understood more than, than, than any of the others. I mean, he, 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 had, he had risen to the top of, of the heap in, the, in terms of the other Pharisees, those who were on the council. He, it's mentioned more than once that he sat under the feet of Gamaliel, the, the, the most revered rabbi of his time. He understood so he had to be thinking, this voice, the brightness of, of this light, is this voice the same voice that Moses heard coming from that fiery bush? What is this? But this voice is asking me, why am I persecuting him? This can't be God. I'm, I'm, I, I'm doing his work. I'm serving him. Who is this? I mean, can you imagine the confusion that he must have felt at that moment? And, and so we, he, the Lord asks him this question. And, and so Saul's response is a normal one. Well, who are you, Lord? He calls him Lord. He understands that this is someone greater than himself. Who are you, Lord? 
No idea who had been speaking to him. He asked a question. Then to his surprise, he hears these words, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, as we're looking at these verses, one thing I do want to mention is that in, in some of your Bibles, the New, New American Standard, ESV, for example, uh, and, and others, you don't have the end of verse 5 that I read and the beginning of verse 6. Basically, what you, you don't have is it is hard for you to kick against the goad. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him. And then your Bible will pick up with arise and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Uh, there, a difference in the ancient manuscripts that these Bibles are pulled from, that, that, that these are pulled from, changes nothing in terms of theology, just simply adds something that the other doesn't have in terms of this particular event. But what we do see here, though, in looking at this New King James Version, which does include those particular passages, as Jesus says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. By, by refusing, by, by Saul's refusal to see Jesus in truth for who he really is, not acknowledging that those who are following the way, those who are disciples of Jesus are, are correct in failing to acknowledge that, He's kicking against the goads. Apparently, there were some goads that he was kicking. You know, the idea of a goad being that it's basically a sharpened stick that a farmer would use to prod or to goad the animals that might be pulling the plow or something. They often would be placed to a plow, a larger plow that would be pulled by a couple of oxen perhaps, goads on that plow, and as the oxen might rebel and kick against it, he'll kick against these sharp goads, and his legs will be bloodied up, and they'll stop kicking. It's hard to kick against the goads. And, and Paul was going through some stuff here because he was kicking against the goads. Uh, the Lord had placed some things there. And, and, and I do go back, as I mentioned earlier, I, I just, just wondering if, if, if what Stephen had said, those words haunting him, Stephen saying, even as he looked up to heaven and, and saying, I see this, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of, of the Father. And, and these words just kind of haunting Saul of Tarsus. Well, as Jesus says that, Saul responds. Saul responds with the idea of, with, with, with trembling and astonishment. I mean, the, the trembling and uh, speaking of fear, the astonishment, just amazement at what he's seeing. Whom are you persecuting, Jesus had asked. We see Jesus here, and this is important for us to see, guys. We see Jesus here identifying with his church. 
He's identifying with the people of his church. He identified with his church then, and he identifies with us today. In Zechariah 2.8, God had said, as Zechariah points out, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. It's the, the, the apple of his eye. That, that's who we are. In Matthew 25.40, that very popular passage in which Jesus speaks about the judgment of the, of the goats and the sheep, verse 40 Jesus said, and the king will answer and say to them, assuredly I, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of these, one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. The idea of when, when did we feed you? When did we visit you in prison? When did we visit you, the orphan and so forth? When, when did we do this to you? And Jesus said, as, as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And of course, that works both ways. We see it in verse 45. Later in this passage, there in Matthew in Matthew 25, those who did not feed the hungry or, or help the poor or visit in prisons and so forth, you did not do it to me. Jesus identifies with us. So anytime a member of his church, his body, is persecuted in any way, he feels that pain. And the one doing the persecuting is going to be called into account for doing that. Works both ways. Think about all the things done against the church over the years. Think about all the groups of people who've been against the church. All of the kings and emperors who worked against the, the church, seeking to destroy the church, and if not the church overall, number of ministers to them. I pulled this off of the Open Doors USA website, which is a ministry in areas of the world that are particularly persecuted for their faith in Jesus. A woman in India watches as her sister is dragged off by Hindu nationalists. She doesn't know if her sister is alive or dead. A man in North Korea in a prison camp is shaken awake after being beaten unconscious. The, beat, the beatings begin again. A woman in Nigeria runs for her life. She has escaped from Boko Haram, who kidnapped her. She is pregnant, and when she returns home, her community will reject her and her baby. A group of children are laughing and talking as they come down to their church's sanctuary after eating together. Instantly, many of them are killed by a bomb blast. It's Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. These people don't live in the same region or even on the same continent, but they share an important characteristic. They are all Christians, and they suffer because of their faith. And according to Open Doors, the top five nations on their world watch list are Afghanistan, number one, North Korea, number two, Somalia, Libya, and Yemen. In these countries, a great deal of persecution against Christians is happening. Guys, we need to be praying for these 
these people in these countries. And in other countries too, but especially this. And it saddens me to think that Afghanistan has risen to the number one spot in terms of the persecution of Christians after what happened last year. It just saddens me that our country has a part to play in that. Um, I will add this. I know that I, had sh I haven't shared with you in, in, in quite a while, but uh, if, if you are receiving uh, um, literature from um, far-reaching ministries, uh, you'll, you'll get a, a newsletter from them on a, on a regular basis. And the last newsletter stated that, that 844 Christians have been extracted from Afghanistan by their ministry and saved from this persecution. Isn't that a blessing? And, and uh, he, yeah, amen, amen. I would encourage you to support that ministry, and obviously over and above your, your ties to your church, but, but to support that ministry for the work that they're doing. It costs millions and millions of dollars to, to, to do this. They've spent, I think that uh, uh, Pastor West said that they had spent over $6 million this year already in that work of trying to extract Christians out of Afghanistan to save them from the persecution. So many millions of people who are opposed to the God of all creation. We have to kind of let that set in a little bit. Opposed to the God of all creation. Not realizing who it is that they really are opposing. They're not just opposing people who believe differently than them. They're opposing the God of all creation, the one who created the heavens and the earth. And they will pay. Even a Saul of Tarsus would be required to pay. Jesus in Matthew 25, 46 said, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So Paul, Saul, I did it again. He responded to this statement. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Trembling, astonished. What do you want me to do, Lord? I find that amazing that, 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 that Saul, he, he, he found out who Jesus is, that this bright light, this, this glory, this glorious light, not knowing who was speaking to him, finds out that it's Jesus, and then says, Lord, what do you want me to do? From persecuting his followers, hearing that it's him, understanding that his followers were right all along through this experience, he then asks, what do you want me to do? These two questions, who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? I believe that the most natural question for any person who finds out who Jesus is, is, is this, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because he's God, amen? Because he is Lord. Because he is master of all. You know, there are different things going on with, with entertainment for our children, masters of the universe kind of a thing, right? No, Jesus is the master of the universe. 
you know, and, and this is something that as we see this and as we see Saul responding, guys, we've got to ask our question, how have we responded? I mean, once we discover who Jesus is, our response should be to bow before him and seek his direction. Ask him, what do you want? How can I serve you? What do you want me to do for you? Because you are worthy. And the Lord didn't answer him immediately other than to say, get up off your feet, arise, go into the city, and I'll tell you. You'll be instructed. You'll be told what you must do. And so, we see in verse 8, that's exactly what Saul did. And as we read the scriptures, it's just amazing to me that how all this takes place. I mean, God says something, arise and go, and so Paul arose and went. When God speaks to us, we ought to respond in exactly the way that he directed us. Get up and go. And some of us say, well, I'm sorry, Lord, but my get up and go got up and went. <laughs> but no, get up and go. So let's get up and go. Arise and go. And notice verse 7, though, that the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. There's some um, confusion about what these men actually heard. Here we see they heard a voice. Verse, 20, uh, verse 22, excuse me, Acts 22, verse 9 says, And those who were with me, uh, or excuse me, uh, Paul speaking, those who were with me indeed saw the light, were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Some translations, the ESV and the New American Standard, say they didn't understand the voice. They heard the voice, probably couldn't even acknowledge that it was a voice, but heard the sound of a voice. Uh, in fact, if we go back to John chapter 12, verses 28 to 30, we see Jesus praying to his Father, and he says in the first part of verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And look at this. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Jesus didn't need to hear that, but these people needed to hear something. But it was an inaudible sound, and this had to be the case with Jesus' voice to Saul of Tarsus but a very powerful, thunderous voice. These guys may have thought it had just simply thundered, like they did in John chapter 12. They heard the sound of the voice, didn't necessarily even recognize that it was a voice, and they saw no one. You know, in, in reading this, and I'll, I'll do this. I'm sure you guys do the same thing. Certain people in the scriptures, these men who were with Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, it's like, whatever happened to these guys? Did they ever respond to the gospel? Did they ever go and hear what Saul had to say after this as he preached the gospel? You'd like to think so, right? We don't know. 
We, we don't know. Verse 8, Saul did arise. He rose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. They led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. His eyes opened, but he was blind. The brightness of the glory of God. So from headed toward Damascus, from Jerusalem, with extradition papers in his hand, the power and authority to persecute Christians, now to a place of blindness and confusion and having to be led by the hand into Damascus. You know, these men just saying, okay, come on, bro, we'll, we'll take you in. Themselves not really understanding what took place. But can you imagine? He was blind for three days, we see there in verse 9. Three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. For three days. Before we see in verse 10, a Christian brother by the name of Ananias coming to him, directed by the Lord Jesus also. But for three days, nothing. He could see nothing. He ate nothing. He drank nothing. Now, he had to be in shock. Had to be in shock. In fact, Pastor Chuck Smith wrote, wrote this. He said, I believe during this time, Paul began rethinking his whole religious background and beliefs. And I thought as I read this, Pastor Chuck, what an understatement. Are you kidding? It's like beginning to rethink some things. Absolutely. He, he had been, uh, Pastor Chuck goes on, he says, he had been one of the high priest boys, had prided himself on his background, his education, and his keeping the law. But now, when he came to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, all those things vanished. And I like what I read from the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. Many places you'll find something like this. Listen to this. It is evident that the apostle considered his extraordinary conversion as a most complete demonstration of the truth of Christianity. Now, this is in reference to one of the later passages in Acts 22 or 26 where, where I, I found this statement. And when all the particulars of his education, his previous religious principles, his zeal, his enmity against Christians, and his prospects of secular honors and preferments by persecuting them are compared with the subsequent part of his life and the sudden transition from a furious persecutor to a zealous preacher of the gospel in which he labored and suffered to the end of his life and for which he died a martyr. It must convince every candid and impartial person that no rational account can be given of this change except what he himself assigns. And consequently, if that be true, that Christianity is divine. I like that. You got to do that. You got to look at the life of Saul of Tarsus and what his life became as Paul the Apostle. How could such a drastic change take place other than the fact that the God of heaven truly appeared to him? Convinced him that this way 
is actually the way. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And he, as a highly educated Jewish scholar, could not enter into the presence of God through his knowledge, through his understanding of the commandments, through his keeping the law. In fact, Paul would later write to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. This would be some 38, or excuse me, some 28 to 30 years after his conversion experience. So three decades later, after this happens, what we just read out of Acts 9, he writes to the Philippians these words, verse 4 out of chapter 3, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but having that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. A few years after he wrote this, five, six, seven years later, he wrote his first letter to Timothy, which would have been like 35 years after his conversion. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 13 to 17, we'll close with this passage today. Paul wrote, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Paul says, I was saved by Jesus Christ as a pattern for others who will be saved after me. I was the worst of all. And if I can be made right with God, anybody can. If I can be saved, anybody can. If I can turn, be turned around 
like this, anybody can. And he's right. Anybody can be saved. Have you ever been praying for someone to be saved who you thought never would be? Have you? Yeah. <laughs> Anthony's raising his own hand. You prayed for yourself to get saved knowing, believing you couldn't, no? Yeah. His sister's agreeing. <laughs> Only by the work of God, though, right? By His grace. And, you know, the, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. Exceedingly abundant. That grace has been poured out on us. And anyone who is here, anyone who would hear this teaching, anyone who hears about the, the, the work of Christ, hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God, which is exceedingly abundant, is available to each and every one. There is no one who is too evil. Yes, if, 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 if a persecutor of the church does not turn and repent and bow his knee to Christ, yes, there's something going to come. And yet Jesus himself, who is being persecuted by those who did the persecution, he went to the cross and bore their sins that they may come in faith to him and experience his grace and be delivered from their sin. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That's our God. That's our God. And Father, we pray that as we see you more and more clearly, even as we go over this incredible, this incredible salvation, this incredible conversion, incredible truth of who you are. God, I pray for every heart in this room, those who are listening outside the room and in the foyer area or maybe back in room 316 or wherever it may be, those who may be listening online. God, I pray that you would have your way in hearts. And Lord, if there's anyone hearing these words today who is yet to bow his or her knee to you, Lord, draw them. Reveal yourself. Save them, God, we pray. And that's what I would ask now as our eyes are closed still, as our heads are bowed still, if there's anyone here in this room this morning who's yet to bow your knee to Jesus, yet to acknowledge that he is God manifest in the flesh, came as the Savior of the world to die for the sins of the world, to die for everyone in this room, yours, the person next to you, mine, all of us, would you receive Christ today? Acknowledge him for who he is and commit your heart to follow after him. I'd love to pray for you. Anyone, anyone here that that describes? You've never made a decision to follow after Christ, but you know you should. You know you need to. You acknowledge the rightness of it, the truth of it. Anyone? So, Father, as we see no hands raised, we certainly pray that that means that everyone here knows you already. I pray that that's so. If not, continue to work in the heart of the one that isn't. Continue to reveal yourself. Have your way.
And God, do your work in the rest of us as well as we follow after you, as we serve you. And Lord, might we ask those questions again that Saul of Tarsus asked on that road? Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? What do you want us to do? Might we serve you? Might we honor you? Might we praise you? Might we give to you the, the honor and the worship, the glory, the praise that you alone deserve to receive? That we remember your faithfulness to all generations. That your mercies are new for us every morning. Might we walk in those mercies. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.